Marcel Ledbetter's got an uncle that lives in Chicago. His uncle called Marcel the other day and said they're fixing to have a big dog show up here in the Civic Center and said, Marcel, it ain't whether your dog can tree a coon or not or high hunts, it's high looks. This is a, what they call a bench show. And highball is so well built, if you'll fly him up here, he'll win this cotton-picking dog show. We get his picture on the front of the next year's program. Marcel said, I ain't never been on no airplane. His uncle said, I'm going to send you a first-class ticket for you and highball. Y'all fly up here. Marcel got on the airplane in Jackson, Mississippi, had his Bible with him. And he started praying and reading the Bible when that airplane took off. Oh, a man across the aisle said, hey, are you a Bible thumper? Ma said, I ain't thumping no Bible, but I believe what it says. I'm reading it. Man said, surely you're not dumb enough to believe that part where a big fish swallowed Jonah and he stayed in the belly of the big fish for three days. Marcel said, I believe every word of the Bible. If God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And the man said, well, you ain't never going to be able to find out for sure. Marcel said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah about it. Man said, what if Jonah ain't in heaven? Marcel said, well, then you can ask him. As I said before, Pastor Adam's grandfather passed away yesterday, so let's keep him and his family in prayer. And he's with his family in Arkansas, and when I told one of our dear members uh, yesterday that I was going to have to preach for Pastor Adam this week, his response to me was something like this, I'll be disappointed if I don't hear me some Jerry Clower. So I spent over an hour yesterday afternoon getting very familiar with Jerry Clower's stories. When I found one, this one that you just heard, that I could use to help me introduce our sermon today, I practiced it over and over. Then I decided there was no way for a northerner to ever correctly tell a Jerry Clower story. <laughs> and that's why I just decided to let Jerry Clower tell his own story, because there's no way I was ever going to make it through. So, <laughs> so how does that story have anything to do with our Advent series? on who the babe in the manger really was and still is today. Well, everything we believe about who the babe in the manger was and is is found in the Bible, God's Word. Therefore, we agree with Marcel's uncle. God said it, we believe it, and that settles it. Amen? You see, there are many, many people outside these doors who have the wrong perception of who Jesus Christ is, and that perception causes them to see Christmas as just another holiday instead of a time to celebrate the incarnate birth of Jesus Christ, God's holy Son. Some believe He was nothing more than a good man. Others believe He was uh, nothing more than a great teacher. But we believe that Jesus was and is, the inf is infinitely, infinitely more than just a good man or a great teacher because God has told us that in His Word. This is why our series this Advent season is focused on the seven I.M.s, 
uh, we find in John's gospel. These statements made by Jesus himself about himself help us assure us that our faith in Jesus Christ is well-placed and will bring eternal blessings with us when we see him and spend eternity with him in heaven. Amen. These seven I am statements help us see who really is. He's, it's not just a babe in a manger. It's not just a human in a manger. There's something different about Jesus Christ. And we've already looked at four of the seven I am's. First, Jesus is the exclusive way to God because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Second, Jesus is the only way to satisfy the longing of our souls because he is the bread of life. Thirdly, Jesus is the singular force for eternal security and safety because he is the only door to heaven. And fourthly, Jesus is the good shepherd, the only one who will lay down his life for his sheep, those whom God has given him. Pastor Adam and I hope and pray that our time together gaining a better understanding of these seven I am statements will greatly increase your joy as you celebrate this Advent season, as you reflect on these I am statements. So please bow with me and let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would be with me as I speak your word, as I walk through John chapter 11. Help it to be clear, help it to... um, to bless their hearts and to point them to you. And Father, I also pray for those who are in front of me this morning, the listeners, that you would open their hearts and their minds to see who Jesus Christ really is and to bring a sense of security and joy and rejoicing that the babe in the manger is more than just a human baby. In Christ's name, amen. So please turn with me to John chapter 11. And we find that... uh, on John, on page 1,141 of the Pew Bible, and uh, we're going to look at the next uh, I am statement. Uh, we are going to, I encourage you to open a Bible because we're going to go through all of chapter 11. There's 57 verses there, and so we're not going to uh, put a whole lot of that, uh, none of it actually, on the screens because you're going to want to follow through on, in your uh, uh, Bibles. And let me, uh, I want to remind us, uh, remind us why John penned his gospel. And we find that, okay, in John chapter 20. So if you want to just put your finger in John chapter 11 and turn over to John chapter 20, we will find out the reason why John wrote his gospel. John chapter 20, starting in verse 30. John 20, verse 30. And here John says, this is the purpose of my book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that we have read about and will continue to read about, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you want to know, the th- that's the theme verse for all the gospel of John. Circle it. That tells you why John wrote every word that he's written in his gospel. John wanted you and I to know who Jesus was and is beyond a shadow of a doubt. He wanted us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that it is through him that true life, eternal life is found and through nobody else. John's recording of Jesus' I am statements are a major part of John's proof of who Jesus is. And this is so important for us today because with Satan's help, the world, as I've already said, uh, that we live in really doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. 
We've been studying in Acts that we need to be a, a witness, a good witness. We cannot be a proper witness unless we know who our Savior is. We cannot witness to the world in a way that makes a difference until we understand who Jesus is and we can pass that on to the world outside. Because the world outside does not understand who Jesus is. And this is why it's so important for us to be clear about who our Savior is when we witness. Chapter 11 is notable in uh, the book of John because it nails down the importance of Jesus' death and resurrection. In this chapter, uh, we again find Jesus' enemies wanting to kill him. And up to this point, uh, they had threatened to kill him. They had maligned his character. They had uh, taught against his teachings. Uh, but there really wasn't any organization. There wasn't any real plan to get rid of Jesus. But if you turn and look at uh, John chapter 11, verse 53... So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now this was an organized move to make sure that Jesus is going to be gotten rid of because they were afraid that too many people would believe on him. And this, this is a huge change. And the change is because of what is happening in this event that we're going to look at today. This event leads us that we're going to look at today is the fifth I am statement. And so let's uh, look at John chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and verse 5. And this, these verses set the stage for the fifth I am statement. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the, uh, the village of Mary and, Beth, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, so whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What we see here in, this, in these verses is the setting, the, the stage is being set with a, an explanation of the people and the places. John opens up by introducing uh, who is involved in this uh, event. There's a man named Lazarus that is ill. It is Lazarus that lives in Bethany. Not a lot of people would have known Lazarus. Lazarus. This is the first time we see him mentioned here. All right? And, but he, people do know who Mary and Martha are because we find in other Gospels that they have been traveling around with Jesus. They have been with Jesus. And uh, we're familiar with Mary and Martha because of some things that are recorded in the other Gospels. All right? But they really wouldn't have known who Lazarus, their brother, was. And so how many of you here, when you were growing up, had an older brother or sister Okay, you know what this is like, all right? They don't really know you, but you're the brother or the sister of this person. And that's how you referred to in high school, right? Oh, you're the brother of, you know, Sam, or you're the sister of, 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 of this, okay? This is, how, this is how he's introducing, he's drawing our attention to who Lazarus is, where he's living, and where this event took place. We understand in verses 3 and 5 that John... Uh, uh, John has, a, excuse me, Jesus has a really close relationship with his family. In fact, in verse 5, we find out that uh, the sisters say that uh, Jesus loves Lazarus. He had a, a, a close relationship. And so they sent a messenger to Jesus to tell him that Lazarus was ill. That would have been normal, true? I mean, uh, we, uh, Pastor Adam is experiencing this right now. His grandfather was ill. 
A message went out to, to, to Adam to say, your grandfather is not doing well. That's normal human interaction here. And this is the same thing that's happening here. This is nothing special. This is normal life. This is a family that loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them. And Lazarus is ill, and the sisters say, Jesus, the one you love, he's sick. He's sick, just to let him know. They may have been hoping that Jesus would come and help their brother. That may be an underlying theme, but we're not sure. But what we find here is Jesus' reaction to the news wouldn't have been what the sisters expected. He didn't run to them. He didn't console them at this time. He was kind of matter of fact and gave a reason for Lazarus' illness. And look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, when the messenger had come and when he had heard this, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Again, we see the sovereignty of God on display here. Lazarus' illness and death wasn't just something that happened in a sin-cursed world. It was planned by God for His glory and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's specifically stated. It is hard for us to think like this when When difficult times come into our lives. We often forget that God brings glory to Himself during our difficult times. Illnesses, situations in our family, some small, some big, are all designed to bring what? glory to God. And Jesus immediately, when it's brought to him, his disciples are there, and he says, he doesn't say, hey, we need to go. We got to get up. Let's get, let's go. We got to go see Lazarus. He says, hey, by the way, I just want you to know that this is all going to fall out to bring glory to God and to myself. This is God's plan. Much glory was brought to God when Job lost everything and refused to deny God. Amen? And he lost everything. He lost his flocks, he lost his servants, he lost his family. Much glory was brought to God when Saul tried to kill David for months, but David responded with grace and mercy when he had the chance to kill Saul. All throughout the Bible we see God bringing himself glory through things that are just really difficult in life. And this, it's passages like this that we need to come to our mind when tragedy strikes our lives. It doesn't mean we won't grieve as we will see the sisters doing here in a few minutes, but knowing the hard times in our lives bring glory to God makes the hard times have a purpose. It's just not some random thing. If you're going through a hard time right now, come to this passage, understand what this passage is saying, understand what Jesus said. What you're going through right now has purpose in your life. It's not some random act of a universe that nobody controls. It has purpose There's a mission to be had, and God is in control, and He loves you. But when we come to verse 6, we have to ask the question, why wait? Look at at verse 6. So when he heard, Jesus had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after, he said to the, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Why did Jesus wait two extra days before he left? Think about that. Have you ever asked that question? Many of us have been taught and many of us have, have thought that he was waiting for Lazarus to die, to make sure that Lazarus died, but that's really not accurate according to the text. And you say, well, how do we know that? Well, go down to verse 39, chapter 11, verse 39. Jesus is already there. We'll get to here in a minute, but I just want to show you. Jesus said, okay, uh, 
take away the stone. He is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the fifth I am statement, or will lead to the fifth I am statement. Uh, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time he will, there will be an order, for he has been dead for how long? Four days. So Jesus only waited two days. Where did the four days come from? We have to understand that the timeline probably went like this. The messenger was sent from the sisters to tell Jesus that the one you love is dying or is ill. They didn't say he was dead, didn't tell him anything. They just said what? He's ill. That was a day trip. It would have taken a day for him to get there. Then Jesus waits for another two days. And then who has to have a day trip to come back to go to meet them? Jesus and his disciples. That's where the four days comes from. We have Jesus, uh, the messenger taking a day to get there, Jesus waiting two days, and then a day's uh, travel of Jesus and disciples to get there. So what is the significance of this four days? Because it is significant, and it makes a difference when we understand what's going on here. You see, the Jewish religious leaders taught that after a person died, their soul would hang around the body for three days. Okay? They really weren't considered dead dead for three days. In fact, the mourning, uh, there was mourning, and, and uh, the Jewish mourning process was, very, was fairly complicated in a long time, but the real mourning did not start until the fourth day, because the Jew, according to the Jewish religious leaders, on the fourth day, that was when there was no hope of being revived, and the soul actually left the body or did not hang around the body anymore. And that's what the Jewish folks would have th- thought in, those, in that four-day time frame. They didn't know if Lazarus, uh, would, uh, his body would be revived, and if he was revived, what did he need to have to be Lazarus again? His soul. And so Jesus waited four days because he did not want, okay, the Jewish religious leaders to detract from anything he was getting ready to do in raising Lazarus because they could say he wasn't dead. His soul, his body just revived and his soul came back in. Jesus made sure that he did not show up until the fourth day. Because then there was no way that the religious leaders could say what? Lazarus wasn't dead. And that kind of opens up this passage a little bit. That's really cool for us to look at and see that everything here is part of God's plan, even the number of days that it took Jesus to get to Bethany. It was part of God's sovereign plan to make sure that nothing was in the way of His glory or the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Not even an unfounded Jewish tradition that a person had to be dead for four days to be really considered dead. We need to pause here for just a minute and reflect. Don't miss out on the comfort available to us in these verses. God is in control. There is nothing in this earthly life of in the earthly life of Jesus or the lives of Lazarus, his sisters, and Jesus or Jesus' disciples that God was not in control of. The same is true for our lives. We've already mentioned it some, but again, we see this in in these verses. Every sickness, every death, every tear shed because of sickness and death we encounter in our lives is under God's control and is part of His plan for our lives to bring Him glory. We need to take comfort in that. If you struggle with an illness, if you struggle with, it is part of God's plan to bring glory to Himself. It is not your lot in life just to grin and bear it. God is in control. Just like he was in control of Lazarus' death, how many days it took Jesus to get there, he set everything up. He set the stage to make sure that everything happened 
so that nobody could get in the way of his glory and Jesus Christ's glory. Amen? It's the same thing that happens in our lives today. We need to take great comfort in that. As we continue, we're not going to read all of these verses. In verses 7 through 16, we see travel plans being made. In verses 7 through 16, we see travel plans. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. In these verses, in the verses that I just read and following verses, uh, the disciples, uh, Jesus says, it's time for us to go. It's time for us to be in Bethany, to be with those that I love. And the disciples are not really happy that Jesus is going back to Judea. They are concerned for Jesus' safety, as we read in verse 8, because not long ago, and we see this in chapter 7, verse 1, he had to leave uh, Judea because the Jews were looking to kill him. It wasn't an organized effort. It was just those that he was preaching to got mad, and they wanted to try to kill him, all right? And then um, in, we, in this, we understand, okay, that the, the disciples also had some self-preservation, because if they were going to follow Jesus into Judea and they were worried that Jesus was going to be killed, what did they think about themselves? Who else was going to be killed? How do we know that? I mean, are we just looking, look down at chapter, at verse 15. And I, I like who, who said this. I, I mean, I, I, I just, it hit me. Verse 15, then Jesus told him plainly, uh, Jesus in the process of this had said, Lazarus is sleeping. Uh, they didn't understand. They thought that Lazarus was going to get better. But Jesus told him plainly that Lazarus is dead. We need to stop there just for a minute. How did Jesus know Lazarus was dead? Nobody told him. Who was he? God. Who was all-knowing? Jesus. Again, we see a point here from John that Jesus knew sovereignly that Lazarus was dead. So and then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad, and I was not there to believe, but let us go to him. Look at verse 16. So Thomas called the twin. So who was Thomas? What do we often call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Okay, Thomas just doesn't take anything at face value. All right? And he says, and so think of, put this in the, the idea of resignation here. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, basically he said, Jesus is going, we're going to follow him, let us go also so that we may die with him. What did Thomas assume? If we go back to Judea, we're all going to die. And we might as well get that in our minds, and we might as well follow our Lord because we're all going to die. And that is why, uh, not just in the time frame that we needed but uh, for, for the days, but when they were making the travel plans, it really upset the disciples. They're human like us. They didn't want to die, did they? But they chose to follow Christ anyway, even though in their spirit there was a, there was a sense of resignation we might as well go. We're not going to get out of this. And so we see this, uh, and that, Je that Lazarus is dead. His sisters are mourning. Jesus has waited two days before traveling to Bethany. The disciples are wary. They're not sure they want to go to Judea with Jesus, and they're trying to talk him out of it. And John is going to move us, close, uh, move us now to Jesus' arrival in verse 17. To Jesus' arrival in verse 17. He says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus arrives. People are waiting for him. He hasn't made it to Bethany. Martha gets up and goes out to meet him. And what we see in this, as soon as Jesus arrives, okay, Martha comes and, we, and, and talks to him, and we see the grief and hope of both Mary and Martha. And I want us to understand this. In death, even though we are Christ followers, are we going to grieve when we lose a loved one? Absolutely. But we don't grieve like the rest because we have hope in Christ. And we see both of these in Martha and Mary and how, and how she reacts to this. And we just, uh, if you went, look at verse uh, 24, uh, excuse me, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Was she scolding Jesus? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Or was she just stating her grief? You see, Martha understood something, didn't she? Because of, remember the four-day thing? Would Martha have understood? She understood how long it would take for the messenger to get to Jesus, right? And we understand that more than likely, really, really soon after the messenger left, who died? Lazarus. All right, he had already died. Did she know that there was no possible way for Jesus to have been back? Because the messenger hadn't even made it to him yet. And so this here could not be an, uh, an accusation. It could not have been anything that if you had been here, basically what it was is what we all go through as humans. Lord God, if you had been here, and I know you couldn't, my brother would still be alive. What, what do we call that? Grief, don't we? If, Lord, if you had just been here, if you had just been here, my brother would still, do you hear, feel the pain if you had just been here? This is an emotional, grief-stricken statement to Jesus. If only you could have been here. What faith she had. She was convinced, and so was her sister Mary, because Mary says the same thing. Drop down to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, what? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What faith both of them have. But it seems that there was still hope in Martha's mind. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But in light of verse 39, okay, this was not a hope that Jesus would have still raised Lazarus because she wouldn't have been familiar with that. It was just a general acknowledgement that Jesus had special blessing from God. And so as we look at that, we see two sisters who are grieving, but they still have hope. And we see that uh, even as, uh, as we read further down, uh, look at verse, uh, starting at verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. What, what kind of hope would that have brought to Mary and Martha? Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What is so neat and important about that? She says, I what? No, 
I know. It is part of who I am. It's not I know maybe. It's not mo I, I guess. It's I know he will rise again in the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And what was Martha's reply? Yes. And now I want us to draw our minds all the way back to last week when Pastor Adam preached. and He made a really uh, uh, a pointed statement as he was preaching last week that on the importance of belief. Belief is not intellectual like I believe that God exists. It's not just that intellectual statement. Belief is this idea that I believe it so much that it is going to become part of who I am and my life is going to change because of it. And even back as we've been going through these, belief has been an important thing and Pastor Adam pointed that out. And I want to show you something, how prevalent that is here in our passage today. So look at verse 15. Go all the way back to verse 15. And Jesus uh, told them plainly, uh, plainly Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that what? You may believe. Okay, look at verse 25. Go to verse 25. And Jesus uh, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall, yet shall he live. Whoever what? believes in me. Look at verse 26. Lives and believes in me. Again, we see that idea of believe. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Drop down to verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Look at verse 42. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people. He's praying to his father right now, Jesus is. Uh, on account of the people standing around, that they may what? Believe. And look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. How many times is this idea of belief referenced in this short passage? Over and over and over and over. Because we have to understand something. Jesus is only, the I am statements only mean anything to us personally if we believe in who Jesus was and is. Amen? It's not just believing that God exists. It's believing that in through Jesus Christ, the only way I can have an eternal life with God. It is the, he is the only one. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. He is the only way to get to the Father. That's what belief is here. That's the idea here. And I love verse 27. Go back up there for a minute. And she said to him, Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I believe. Can I ask you this? Can you make that same confession? Can you make that same confession, uh, confession with the same conviction that Martha did in her grief? I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that all of my life, all of life itself comes through you. Can you make that same confession? Can you look at somebody like Martha was looking at Jesus Christ? Can you stand before Jesus Christ if he was standing there like he was with Martha and look him in the eyes and say, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
and know that Christ would know the answer to that because he looks at your heart and not just what you say. Does your heart bear that confession out? Is that uh, confession lived out in your life? Knowing that everything that you are, every part of your life and every part of your being is wrapped up in Jesus Christ because he is the son of the living God, the one who is the resurrection and the life. Can you stand before Christ like Martha did and let Jesus Christ see your heart and have your confession to be absolutely true? That's a hard thing, isn't it? Because today in so many churches, we have people who say, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that, that the babe in the manger, that he was, you know, God's son, but they don't live that out as a confessional. They don't live that out, and it doesn't impact their life, and, and they just come into church, and they, uh, but it really has no impact on who they are, what they do, and the decisions they make or the priorities they make in their lives. You see, that confession cannot be true unless that confession shows that you are living like you really believe he is the Christ, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, the good shepherd, the bread of life. It is only then that you can be assured of your salvation when your life shows that that is your heart confessional. And Martha had that even in the midst of grief because she lost her brother. And I really love what we see in Jesus, how John portrays Jesus throughout this whole story. We see the heart of Jesus. We see the heart of Jesus in three verses. Jesus, remember, loves this family. Jesus also knows what he's going to do. There is no doubt in his mind. Jesus understands that Lazarus is dead. He understands that this illness was uh, going to lead to uh, his father's glory and his glory. Jesus knew everything that was going on. But we still see Jesus' heart. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. You say, why would Jesus be like that? He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would he get upset? Why would he weep? Why would he be deeply troubled? It wasn't because he was mourning over Lazarus' death, but what he was mourning over, what he was grieving over, is what he saw in the weeping before him and the heartbreak and the agony that sin causes. And he was deeply moved. He was deeply, uh, almost to the point, in the way that the Greek is written here, it was almost like he was irate. It wasn't just moved with emotional compassion. It was like he was irate because look at what sin is doing in my world. Look at what sin has done to these people. Look at what sin has done in the death of Lazarus. And Jesus Christ was deeply moved when he saw what sin was doing there right in front of him. And then we see his heart again in verse 35. Jump down to verse 35. And Jesus wept. Jesus as a human being experiences all of being a human being, all of everything that we experience 
And Jesus, even though he understood that he was going to raise Lazarus and understood the joy, did Jesus understand the joy that Mary and Martha were going to have here in just a little bit? Absolutely. But he wept because of his heartbreak, the sin that he saw that caused all this again. He wept because of the sin again. It's this whole idea that he is looking at the situation. How many of you weep and grieve over the sin that you see in the world? How many of you uh, feel your heart tighten and have tears well up in your eyes and feel a heavy burden when you understand the hunger and the poverty that we see all around us right here? The hunger and poverty that's caused by sin and, and the abuse of children, the abuse of women, and all the things, that, and, and, and sex trafficking and everything that is going on because of the sin in the world. Or do we get caught up in our nice little lives and bubbles and we rarely ever feel the pain of the sin around us like Jesus did. Do you ever take a step back out of your life and look at the and the evil of sin in the world around us? You see, when we see that, it causes us to do what? Weep. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, and we have His compassion. And when we see what sin does to people, when we see what sin, how sin destroys lives, then we care and we emote because it hurts. And that also does something else to us. That grief, that pain drives us to do what? to try to make a difference where God has placed us. That could be in our witness to Jesus Christ about who Jesus Christ was, an accurate witness. It could be because we do like we do at Good Shepherd and help uh, uh, people who are uh, in poverty and who don't have enough to eat. It's when we go out and spend for, uh, raise $1,400, which is just a great thing, and, and we go out and buy uh, toys and clothes and Christmas presents for uh, needy children. We don't do that just because it's the thing we can do and it puts like a, a chink on our little uh, thing over here for Sardis Baptist Church. We do that because we have pain and we have sorrow over what these people are experiencing and we want to step in like Christ stepped into our lives and bring comfort. When we don't see that, it means we are not looking at the world with Christ-like eyes. It means we are looking at the world from our own eyes and only worried about who we are and what we are doing. Let's not be like that. Let's be like Jesus Christ, who knew He could change everything in an instant, who was going to change the life of, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, but He still wept because of the impact that He saw of sin having around Him. We also see him uh, again, you see the heart of Jesus the third time in verse 38. And then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And it was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus says, take away the stone. He was deeply moved. And then we see Lazarus is raised from the dead. Starting at verse 39 again, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And we need to understand something about that statement. Going back up to when she says, I know that you can do whatever the Lord, whatever 
the, you can do whatever, the, you can ask the Father and He will do what you ask earlier in the passage. Did she think from this verse that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead? No, because why? She says, don't remove the stone. He stinks. It's been too long. Even in her own heart, she understood what? Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is not coming back. My brother is gone. She understood that he would rise again in the last days, but from that point, she had no clue what Jesus was getting ready to do. And Jesus said to her, did, you not, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? And Jesus is reminding her, if you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, if you believe that, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew uh, that you always hear me, but I, s- I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine what the people around, what his disciples would have seen? Having Lazarus come back from the dead was one thing. But standing next to the guy and looking at Jesus and saying, he did that. That is our Jesus. That is who we serve. That is who we place our faith in. That is who we place our eternal life in, is the man who could raise a man who had been dead for four days and everybody thought it was hopeless except Jesus Christ. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Lazarus was raised from the dead. We ripped through this passage, and I want us to just focus on one thing in a similar way that Pastor Adam has been leading us through this Advent season with what Adam has called the Advent application. There's so many applications we could get out of this passage, and we haven't even completely finished it, and we're not going to today. But the Advent application we take from verse 25, go all the way back up to verse 25. And this is the I am statement. Now that you have an idea of what was going on, and Jesus said to her in verse 25, excuse me, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Amen? He says, I am. He did not say, I am the one who can raise people from the dead. He didn't say that, did he? He said, I am. I am as a being. I am as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. I am the resurrection. I am the life. The Advent application for us is the babe in the manger is the one who we depend on for our resurrection and our eternal life. There is nobody else. It's not just a baby. It's just not just a human baby. It is the one who came from heaven on his own accord to give up his own life for us so that we, and and through his resurrection, we can be assured that we have one also. If Jesus, if if he is not the resurrection, 
then we have no assurance of our salvation. We have no assurance that we will rise from the dead. If He is not the life, the source of life, then we have no hope either. And that's what we need to remember about the babe in the manger. That's what we need to grab onto this season in this fifth I am statement. Jesus says, I am this, and because of that, we have eternity with God. And with the other Advent uh, I am statements, we understand that not o- the only way to have Him be our resurrection and our life is if we see Him as the good shepherd and the door through which He is the only one that anybody can reach Jesus, uh, God and heaven. Amen? Don't just sing Christmas carols. Don't just wait for this presence underneath the tree. Don't be like Michelle's song. You're doing everything, and still at the end, there's still an emptiness. There's still a, there's still a, a point of, of, I don't know what's missing. Should I go to the store again? Should I go online again? Did I forget something? And if you forget that He is the resurrection and the life, you've missed Christmas altogether. If you forget that He is the Good Shepherd, if you forget that He's the way, the truth, and the life, if you forget that He's the door, then we miss everything about Christmas until we sing, Whose Child Is This? Which is a song we're getting ready to sing as the worship team comes up. What child is this? He is the resurrection and the life. He is our hope, and we know that we will have eternal life for all eternity, all right, because of His resurrection, because of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So as we sing, I'm not going to close in prayer right now, because I want what we're getting ready to sing, what child is this, to help us reflect on what we see in John chapter 11.